0: Well, I will go ahead. I know people are probably going to like hop on later, but I thought I'd go ahead and get started. So everyone who's on, um, this is Dr. Brennan Breed. He is um, a professor of Old Testament at the seminary I attended, Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta um, that we both used to live in, or John and I used to live in. Brennan's still there. Um, And yeah, he was one of my favorite professors. And like I said, and when I was advertising for this, an all-around cool dude so um yeah Brennan. as i have mentioned we've been going through the book of revelation we're actually wrapping that up uh soon and oh, nice. as i've gotten to preach a few times in it i've you know hearkened back to some old testament references um as a good uh old testament student uh so i thought it would be really helpful for you to kind of like uh just kind of yeah. dive in about apocalypse and especially daniel which is you know one of your, one of your jams and yeah. yeah, enlighten us about apocalypse and all its weirdness. So yeah, take it away.
1: That sounds great. Well, uh, let me pray for our time and, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll jump in I'll just maybe ask some questions at first, but, uh, but yeah, then we'll, we'll dig, we'll dig down. Uh, let's pray. God of all seasons, God of all years, God of all time, God of the beginning and of the end of the alpha and the omega the one before us and the one after us, you promise and we wait We wait with eager longing. We wait with doubt and anxiety, sometimes with thin patience. We wait because you are the one and the only one. We wait for your peace and for your mercy, for your justice and for your reign. Give us your spirit that we may wait, that we may wait with discernment, that we may wait caringly, trustingly, without cynicism, that we may wait honestly. Grant that our wait may be appropriate to your coming soon and very soon, soon and not too late. We wait while the world groans in eager longing. Amen. That's from a predecessor mine written prayer by predecessor mine Walter Brueggemann um, who uh, uh, taught that was for the class on apocalypse that he taught. uh, So in any event at at, the Columbia Seminary. But, okay, so uh, apocalypse, apocalyptic. Okay, I've got a, like a PowerPoint presentation that I usually give for power, you know, for uh, uh, when I, whenever I talk about apocalyptic literature and I can drop that in the chat here if you're interested. But if there's only a few of us, I can, you know, there you go. There's, there's, a, there's a Google Drive slideshow if you want it. Um, but I'm not gonna do that for us because then we can just, we can kind of chat together for a while uh, uh, instead. But if you wanna see what I usually show people, um, there it is. So let me just start with this my like basic theological principle about the Bible is that God tries to communicate to people in ways that they can understand that they can like get something from, uh, and people are limited. We have small brains. Uh, we are inured in language. Like we have to have language in order for us to understand anything. Uh, we have to have, be spoken to in ways that make sense to us culturally. And that's limited, limited to certain times and places. Um, so if God's going to speak to us, it's gotta be, uh It's got to be in a language we know. It's got to be in kind of metaphors that we already understand that we've gotten from our culture. Uh, And to me, this is kind of incarnational. This is like the way that God meets us where we are and speaks to us in ways that we could possibly understand. Um, So when we look at the Bible, we're looking at stuff that can speak to anyone at any time in any place, but really is put into a particular idiom, a particular language of a time and a place. And so when we think about that uh, carefully, when we want to understand what would an ancient person have understood when they heard this stuff? Like a good example is Ezekiel's wheels within wheels, like Ezekiel one through three, where people are like, was it, what was he smoking? You know, uh, you know what, what, what was going on in this? Did he see an alien or something? You know, and if you kind of look carefully at the imagery that Ezekiel is using to explain what he sees in Ezekiel chapter one, with these wheels within wheels flashing in the sky and stuff, it actually makes a lot of sense because what he, at least what he's telling us that he's seeing sounds a lot like images from ancient art that people would have been familiar with. Now, I won't spend my time in Ezekiel 1 through 3, but we can come back to that if you want. But that's just to say that when we read apocalyptic literature, we're reading stuff that made a lot of sense to people at the time. It would have seemed kind of strange to some people reading it. But there are a lot of people who would have read it who would have said i know exactly what this is talking about and this stuff makes a lot of sense to me um, it was a type of literature that they just understood um, a little bit like uh, political cartoons is a great example that i like to give where like if you look at a political cartoon it's like a donkey and an elephant like hitting each other with hammers or something or whatever and you're like oh this makes a lot of sense to me i know exactly what they're talking about but if you show that to someone who's from a different culture different time, different place. Like if you got a time machine, went a hundred years ago and showed that to people, they'd be like, well, what the hell is this? Right? I mean, I have no, no idea what you're showing me. Um, the donkey and the elephant are, are hitting each other with hammer hammers. Um, but but th- this is to say that if, you, if you're speaking or writing in a kind of symbolic shorthand, that's often what we're doing. Like that's how we communicate with each other. Um, if you think about memes and things like this, you know, we're speaking in this shorthand that has all this subtext, cultural subtext that we just don't We don't explain because we don't need to. Uh, We have language to do that for you. know, there's kind of this this massive language in our brains and and cultural reservoirs in our brains that do that translation work for us immediately. Uh, And in a way, these ancient texts that are the most confusing to us are the ones that are the thickest with that ancient culture uh, that we miss. Um, One example of this that I like to give just to say ancient Israel is a latecomer on the scene. There are there are cultures that uh, were that ancient Israel knows about that are thousands of years older than them, uh, and that have had a rich and thick cultural like network that has expanded and, and has really given rise to israel too uh, and that's the kind of the world that they live in and they speak if you think about anyone who lives today they've all seen squid games now right i mean everyone i feel like it's like you know you get it's gonna be beamed into our brains right um everyone has seen the same five netflix shows around the world and in a way that gives us this like shared cultural reservoir of language that we can communicate with each other about and that was true of the ancient world too everyone had read Gilgamesh. There are copies of Gilgamesh in ancient Israel. Everyone knew these stories. And like the ancient Egyptian creation stories and stuff, people just knew these stories. They wandered around the ancient world and people had manuscripts of them. People had texts of them. People were familiar with these concepts. So if we know some of these shared cultural reservoirs, um, that helps. And just to say, this is my, my little example about this to kind of like the blowing, blowing your mind moment. Um, so uh, Ezekiel, same guy that I mentioned with that vision of the wheels within wheels, Ezekiel has that vision of the wheels within wheels. He has that in exile in Babylon and the Jews are, he, he himself is taken into exile in 597 BC. So in 597 BC, Ezekiel sitting there seeing that, whatever he sees by the river Kibar, this little canal that goes through a, a Babylonian town called Nippur. And when Ezekiel walks through the doors of Nippur, the city to which he's been deported, you and I right now, are closer in time to Ezekiel walking through that door of Nippur, the big monumental gate of of that Babylonian city. You and I are closer in time to Ezekiel doing that than Ezekiel was to the founding of that city to which he had been deported. So I'll say that again. You and I are closer in time to Ezekiel than Ezekiel was to the founding of the Babylonian city to which he had been deported. And and, And Israel's entire history was only about 500 years old at that point in time. From Ezekiel's time, so Ezekiel—it was 500 years from the founding of the nation of Israel to Ezekiel, but it was 3,000 years from the founding of the city of Nippur to the time Ezekiel was taken in bondage to it. So, all to say uh, that this is a pretty radical uh, uh, kind of time dilation. At least was for me when I realized this—that you know it was about 2,500 years ago that Ezekiel was taken there, and it was about 3,000 years uh, before. Ezekiel's birth that Nippur was founded, the, the Babylonian city. Just to say that there was 3000 years of rich culture. I mean, by the time Israel emerges, the pyramids are like long gone. Like, they, I mean, not, not long gone, like destroyed, but no one had been building pyramids for like 2000 years by the time Israel's, or, you know, that 1500 years. Um, that, that is to say they were like ancient, ancient history to Ezekiel, uh all to say that these images that we see that are suffuse uh, the apocalyptic literature that we can read in the Bible um, are ancient, ancient images that would have made tons of sense to the people walking through them. And it's the kind of stuff that Ezekiel would have seen on the walls of Nippur as he would have walked by. Uh, It's the stuff uh, that Moses would have seen in the court of Pharaoh, these images uh, of strange monsters and beasts and the kind of number games that are played with in apocalyptic literature and all this stuff. I do think that uh, the genre, the type of literature that we read when we read apocalyptic literature, that was kind of a new thing when Jews started to write it. I don't think there were people writing apocalyptic literature before Jews began to write it. But I do think that what Jews do when they write apocalyptic literature is they have all these images and symbols and techniques that they borrow from the languages and cultures around them because that's how they were always writing. That's how they understood their own world. They were a late comer on the scene. Uh, so things like the ocean, the ocean is a symbol of chaos in the ancient world from Egypt all the way through to Mesopotamia and ancient Persia and Israel's this tiny little people in between all that massive culture. Everyone there talks about the ocean being a symbol of chaos. And so the chaos monsters that live in the ocean, you can see this in the Bible too. Leviathan um, Leviathan is a name that comes from the Canaanites. The Canaanites, six thousand years before Israel emerged, we're talking about Leviathan, uh, Leviathan, uh, the sea monster. So all to say, Israel's borrowing these images from the cultures around them, but not doing the same things as the cultures around them. So it helps us to kind of think a little bit about that. Um, so first thing to differentiate is apocalyptic, apocalypse, and an apocalyptic worldview. So when we talk about an apocalypse, we're talking about like a special type of book, right? Like a like a, like a comic book or a fairy tale, you know, a genre of literature, a type of literature. Uh, so when we talk about apocalyptic literature, there's some stuff that kind of hangs together. Uh, so what's the stuff that you all see? You all been hanging out in Revelation for a little while. Um, what's some stuff that you notice from apocalyptic literature?
2: Uh, it's like big, like big cosmic things are happening.
1: Yeah, a cosmic stage. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Yeah, cosmic things are happening. Um, and I'll tie that too to say that there's a lot of these ancient motifs of creation uh, that are brought up in apocalyptic literature. So if you read like Daniel seven, it sounds a little bit like an ancient Near Eastern creation story. Um, there's winds blowing on the water. It Sounds like Genesis one. It also sounds a lot like what the Babylonians talk about. Sounds like what the Egyptians talk about. That is to say. Israel's an ancient people. They talk about creation like the other peoples around them talk about creation, except instead of a violent fight where the gods kill each other, there's just one God and that God creates the world and it's good. That's the part that's different. Um, But uh, there being wind sweeping across cosmic waters and stuff, that's how everyone talks about creation in the ancient world. But so yes, the the stuff about creation uh, comes up in these apocalyptic stories, which is really interesting because apocalypse is all about the end, right? Um, Oh, we'll come back to that. So uh, anything else? What else do you all notice about apocalyptic literature? it seems to be usually very like it's very vivid it's
2: very descriptive it kind of goes back with like the previous comment like it is very big it's like it's it's like it's told in the way where it's made to make made to make you
1: notice something you know it, like yeah. really stands out Yes, right. It's a very vivid, uh, dramatic, uh, hyperbolic sometimes. There's 10,000, 10,000 people like doing stuff, whatever, there's all these, you know, this, uh, there's a battle, it's all bloody and things like this, right? Yes, it's like over the top, even dramatic, uh, hyperbolic with all these big numbers. Um, but yes, also with, uh, with kind of, sometimes bizarre monsters that emerge and things like this. Um, And it's supposed to be, it seems kind of catchy. Uh, It's supposed to catch your attention and make you sit up and kind of ask questions, right? Uh, It's told in a cryptic way, we could say too, like to try to make you kind of wonder more about what's going on on the scene. Um, uh, We could say those things are to capture your attention in a way, Uh, these these are meant to be captivating. Um, A bit like a political cartoon where like, you know, you see one, like the, the, I don't know, whatever, one of the uh, animals carrying a giant ax or something, trying to hit the other animal, kind of like a, what's the Simpsons itchy and scratchy cartoon or something, you know? Uh, and you see these like kind of like over the top uh, images. And in a way it's to capture your attention. So you don't turn the page so that you kind of notice what's happening. Yeah. So what else? Yeah. What else do we notice in a in, uh, revelation or, or apocalyptic literature?
2: I think in line with that, I just think of it as very symbolic or lots of these symbols that, you know, what makes it difficult for me to read is like, those aren't symbols that maybe I'm used to, or maybe my thinking goes somewhere else when the original author may have meant something
1: else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, there's tons of symbols and symbols that, uh, and I do think that almost all these symbols would have been immediately recognized to the to jews in the ancient world um whether you're talking about uh jews at the time of the book of daniel or jews at the time of uh and or jewish christians you know jewish followers of jesus uh in, in the book of revelation and gentiles but it would have made sense particularly in a jewish uh um audience or to an ancient Near eastern audience yeah yeah and these like so why speak in symbols um we can talk about that in a minute um but yeah anything else that y'all notice uh, about apocalyptic literature what jumps out at you
2: it seems to kind of be about like the unraveling of stories that have been told. So there's all these symbols that are really like, that everyone is familiar with, like you've said, and then it just kind of puts them to the fire and they start to unravel a little bit.
1: Yeah, so this is a a couple of interesting things here. Yeah, you take these old stories and notice that apocalypses are oftentimes with like these really important characters who feature in places outside of the apocalypse. So John is kind of common name, right? Uh, But also often associated with kind of an apostle or something, right? But like. John's not usually talking like this, um, or Daniel. First six chapters of Daniel have nothing to do with apocalyptic literature at all. They're like they're like stories about how to survive as a Jew in within a foreign culture, and there's no hint really of apocalyptic stuff except for chapter two, where there's this crazy dream which forced out is chapter seven. But all to say, it's like this little tiny like snippets of stuff that might seem apocalyptic, but mainly it has nothing to do with apocalypses. Um, and then all of a sudden, chapter seven through 12 is all about Daniel having these crazy dreams. Um, it's pretty strange. There's other apocalypses from the time of Jesus. Like for example, the books of Enoch. Uh, which have been famous because like Darren Aronofsky used those for the Noah movie uh, as kind of a basis for stuff, right? So uh, people might ha- might be more familiar with them. They're actually a function as scripture for Ethiopian Christians, uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians, um, but uh, no other uh, tradition uses them as scripture today. But they're fascinating because they were super popular at the time of Jesus among Jews, uh, the books of Enoch, especially first Enoch. Uh, and at least parts of it uh, were were well-known and uh, it's even quoted in the book of Jude um, as scripture, Enoch. Uh, but it was a, a revelation. Uh, it was an apothecary. Apocalypse uh, that was uh, kind of put in the mouth of Enoch, uh, Enoch, this bizarrely small you know, a character. Like, I mean, the guy gets one line in Genesis about how he walked for 365 days and then was no more. It um, was taken by God or something like that. Uh, it's not explained anywhere else in Genesis or anything about why this guy would be important. It's a little throwaway comment. Um, but there's this entire series of revelations that are spoken through the mouth of, of Enoch that were common at the time of Jesus. So you see these older characters, characters that seem to have nothing to do with apocalypses, all of a sudden come back and have these visions in these uh, literary uh, dreams. There's an apocalypse of Moses that was popular at the time of Jesus that's also quoted in Jude, the book of Jude, um, uh, but it was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, so all to say that there's, there were lots of apocalypses out there at the time of Jesus uh and uh of course revelation makes it in the bible and daniel does and those are really the only two uh that make it in the bible but there was this was a a, a very common uh, literary genre at the time and they all do this thing where they like find these old stories and then they as you said uh max they unravel they all kind of fall apart it's like so these creation stories are really essential for understanding apocalypses because apocalypse is about the unraveling of creation It's kind of like the reverse order of the creation stories, but then it's about God intervening and putting things back together um, at this end time. Yeah. So this is this is great. It kind of harkens back to this, these like ancient, and we can even say myth, like there's ancient mythological characters, these beasts uh that we can see in ancient Near Eastern creation myths. Um, so like Leviathan, this kind of you know, creature that is not, and I'm not saying myth in a mean way or bad way or whatever, but just to say these creatures that um you know appear in like the depths of time and stuff, uh, they reappear in these kind of stories. Um, So we see these ancient sea monsters and things like this emerge again. Yeah. Uh, Other thoughts or, or comments about what we find when we find apocalypses? What's what stands out to you? Well, I'll uh, I'll throw some other stuff out there. So, uh, uh, you know, apocalypse, first of all, it means revelation or like an unveiling, really, like a taking away, right? Um, As I'm sure you've already already talked about. Um, But so there is this revelation, aspect of revelation that God is revealing something. And this revelation is to a human recipient. There's always a human person receiving this stuff. But in apocalypse is in the genre of apocalypse, like Daniel 7 through 12. The book of Revelation, but also these ancient apocalypses like the apocalypse of Moses, uh, the uh, uh apocalypse of fourth Ezra, which is actually a fantastically Important book, um, Fourth Ezra didn't make it into scripture for anyone, um, but it's a beautiful meditation on the fall of the temple from a Jewish perspective, and it's about this it's like an apocalyptic kind of book. Um, but it's also kind of like the Book of Job too. Why did these bad things happen? A beautiful theological reflection. But uh, another, uh, you know, uh, other ones like like the books of Enoch, these uh, these uh, apocalypses that were circulating at the time. All of them include revelation from God, that, like knowledge of God that comes to a human recipient, and they always are mediated by angels. Uh, angels mediate this or like interpret the message. So the, the human says, I don't get it. And then an angel says, well, let me help you get it. Um, And this is the interesting thing that people point out. There's other like stuff like Moses on Mount Sinai gets revelation from God. It's like, cool, great. I don't need an angel to help me. I can figure this out. Um, but this knowledge is so difficult, so secret, uh, so um, profound that it seems to confuse the humans who can't even like great People like you know uh, you know this Enoch can't figure it out, but he's supposed to be a genius according to the Book of Enoch. Um, so, in any anyway, event, you need an angel to mediate it, and this knowledge um, seems to be about like the distant future, like the uh, the the very very end. But as we see, as we'll see, like from looking at Daniel, it often has to do with the exact time in which they're living. The people for whom this book was written at the time that the book was written. So we can see in Revelation that it does talk about kind of the end of time in a way, but it's also really speaking about this moment uh, in uh, in the Christian community, the early Christian community, when these Jesus followers were facing um, difficulty and persecution under the Roman Empire. I mean, th- th- this is it's kind of a multivalent uh, uh, historical um, uh text uh, but it's always it's never speaking about some distant future that the people who hear it don't have anything to do with it's always about something that's going on at the time as well and time in these books if you think about daniel and you think about revelation time functions in an interesting way usually you retell history using chunks of time in the kind of putting time into periods and usually this this kind of like it's like a historical narration and people have noticed that like through the course of this story that's being it's kind of like a retelling of history in which good is going to triumph in the end. And this is the thing is that these these texts, uh, there's a lot of debate about who writes apocalypses and why, like what kinds of communities create these things. But it seems that they're about people who are being persecuted, people who are going through some sort of uh, um, uh, some sort of persecution event or some sort of um, difficulty that is so complicated, that they can't imagine resolving it within the boundaries of space and time that currently exist. But also it seems to, whatever they're dealing with seems to break their conception of, of the world. It seems to, it's like trauma, right? Which if you go through trauma, it, it shatters your sense of how things make sense in the world, it shatters your notion of the world's order and structure and so it's difficult to make sense of anything after that who am i um who are the you know what is a family to me and uh you know what what does my job mean you know like all of these things you have to renegotiate after going through trauma so if you think about apocalyptic literature really is trying to deal with a fracture a break in the notion of the order of the world and we'll talk about what, some of the history uh behind what happens in daniel in chapter seven in a minute minute um but yeah this this kind of this notion of Uh, the world has broken. Uh, But the the way time works, history works in apocalypses is really interesting because it's a re-narration of history in a totally different way uh, that reorders and restructures time. It's a way that no one else would tell time. So for example, uh, if you think about Daniel 7, there's like the four beasts that come out of the water and each is an empire or Daniel chapter two, which Daniel has the dream of the statue with different types of metals that represent different empires and the feet of clay and iron and so on. One way of reading these stories, the way that, that I'll point out, um, that it's pretty clear because they, they actually say this in the text, um, but <clears throat> it's the four empires uh, that have dominated Israel, Assyria and Babylon, uh, and you can read this in different ways and so on, but, um, but Persia uh, uh, and perhaps Greece uh, that end up dominating uh, the, the Israelite people, dominating the Jewish people. Uh, and it's a way of telling this history of, of being crushed by foreign powers in such a way that the end is then God is going to help us. God is going to fix this. And it's a way of telling it to say God is in charge even though it seems like the world is totally out of joint and totally out of order. In fact, there is an order underlying all of this and it's God's order. And it might not make sense to us and we might not like it. It might be full of awful pain. At the same time, God is in charge and there is this endpoint. It's going somewhere. And the point of all apocalyptic literature that has survived is this, hang on. Hang on and be faithful. It's going to be okay, is the ultimate message of apocalyptic literature. Be faithful. Don't give up. Uh, and by re-narrating history in this way, the history of the world, you're retelling history in a different way. So uh, this was a common theme, uh, a common trope or a metaphor. Well, I mean, this wasn't a metaphor, whatever. What do you call this? A scheme, a common scheme in the ancient world, um, telling the history of the world in terms of three empires or four empires. And the Persians actually start doing this because they get so worried uh, Persia is a really interesting place. Like, it, 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 Persia was not powerful at all until really King Cyrus rises up, and he, he's the one who destroys the Babylonian Empire and sends the Jews home from exile. And it's within like forty years that Persia goes from uh, a kingdom of it wasn't really even a kingdom, uh, a bunch of nomadic horse traders um, who who are a, a very worried about their own cultural influence and power. And within forty years, they have conquered all the known nations in the world to them. I mean, it's this tremendous rise to power for the persians and they conquer babylon the center of culture and power since time immemorial the place of the birth of writing and they were illiterate two generations before the persians and they have just conquered this place and then now they have to run it they have to run the world and so they invent this historical story and the story goes first it was the assyrians then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians. And they tell everyone this. They write it, They write this on places. They tell historians to write this. They tell the Greeks this so many times that the Greeks adopt this as their own way of telling the history of the world. Herodotus, the Greek historian, the great Greek historian, he tells the order of the world like this. He goes, first it was the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians. Like it's inevitable. We're meant to be here. So you can see that it's like the Persians trying to hype themselves up. that telling the history of the world this way. So Daniel takes the same story of the world and says, first it was the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, then it was the Greeks. But then there's a big rock that comes and destroys all these things. And that comes from God. So you can see that it's trying to re-narrate the history of the world to an oppressed people, a people who have been destroyed and stepped on by all these empires to say, there's a bigger empire out there. And God's got, and it doesn't try to explain why. God's got the divine reasons that we don't know. We don't have access to, but God's allowed... These kingdoms to have their time, but their time is limited. It's it's coming to an end sooner or later, and the message throughout Daniel seven through twelve is, and, and in Revelation as well is, hang on. It doesn't say kill kill them all, set off bombs somewhere. Right? There's no terrorist you know activity that it's it's uh, telling you to do. It's just saying hang on. Uh, uh, God's going to come. So, in any event, that's that's one of the things we can say uh, about this this kind of use of time uh, in apocalyptic literature that I find pretty interesting. Um, and we can also see this thing called dualism, where there's good and there's bad, and there's problems with that, right? Because we all we've all seen how that can be used to hurt some a bunch of people. There's good and there's bad, and there's no gray gray line, right? But there are times uh, when certain communities under stress, under uh, severe persecution. There's got be there's got to be a way to say, are you with us or are you against us? It's time to step up or step back, right? Like there's a you know like there, there's, there's these moments, these decisive moments. So I say that to say that apocalyptic literature, when it's used by communities that aren't in trouble, that aren't being persecuted, uh, that aren't in spaces where they're actually being threatened, but think they are. So when it's used by communities that are super powerful, and then are just anxious and their anxiety tell, turn, makes them turn to texts like this that are actually written for people in very different circumstances, um, it can be dangerous uh, when you start to um, use this way of talking about history um, against people, uh, especially people who don't themselves have power. And even, that's just to say that this apocalyptic literature has been used throughout history um, in ways that are uh, particularly, uh, uh, they're dangerous. Um, but uh, OK, let me stop there and just ask questions. I got a couple other things about the end to talk about before we jump into Daniel. But yeah, questions, comments, concerns. Have you all been talking about the same stuff over and over again? Sorry if that was, just, that was all big rehash.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think one question I had um, as I've sort of been contemplating, like, you know, how do you from like a sermon perspective and like how yeah. do you the takeaway, and like what are the theological implications is sort of like how to respond to empire. Like, are we supposed to be like Daniel? I know we haven't been talking about Daniel in church, but like, be yeah. like Daniel and just kind of be this, like, I don't know. He ended up kind of cooperating with empire.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you kind of both, right? right? Cooperating enough to not die. Right. Uh, and then also uh, co opting sometimes, too. Yeah. Right. yeah both. That kind of goes or like to Esther.
0: This. Yeah. Or like Esther. And so it's like, what are we? what are we supposed to do with yeah. Are we supposed to you know yeah. overturn it you know sabotage it are we supposed to sort of weirdly co-opt with it but not you know i don't know like what's what are yeah. you supposed to do so
1: this is great yeah and i i would respond to this um yeah the the same way that i'd respond i mean to me i'm i'm a wisdom literature person you know uh like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that's my wheelhouse. And and what I would say there is like, you know, th- this is a great question. What, what are we supposed to do? And, and I don't think the Bible gives us um, answers that are uh, like one size fits all. Like always do this. Always do this. Anybody everywhere here's what you need. I mean, maybe love God, right? Love your neighbor. Like those are the do do everywhere all the time. One size fits all kind of things. But beyond that, when you want to get more specific, um, it, it really is like, I don't think the Bible is giving us like the the game plan for us. I think what it's giving us is tons of resources and tools that can help us for any particular circumstance, but it's going to require a bit of like wisdom from us. Um, you know, and here I always turn to like Proverbs 26, everyone's favorite part of the Bible, right? Um, uh, but Proverbs 26 verses four and five, if you want to freak yourself out, you can go read those um, too, uh, but they're, they're totally contradictory. One says, uh, uh, basically, um, don't let your neighbor say anything foolish. Uh, you know, this is, that's actually verse five don't let your neighbor say say anything foolish because then like everyone's going to be fools. But then verse four, just before it had said, hey, don't get involved in someone saying foolish things because you're just going to become a fool yourself. Like those two verses, one right after the other are saying completely contradictory things. So the book of Proverbs can't be trying to tell you, here's the one size fits all message. Like uh, here's what you need to be doing. Instead, it's giving you contradictory messages sometimes, but those messages themselves like require wisdom. It's the kind of thing that Proverbs is telling you, seek wisdom, get wisdom, like keep thinking, you know, and it's giving you these different Proverbs because they work, but they work in different situations. So you got to kind of figure out like discern, uh, maybe try one out. doesn't work. Try it again. You know? Oh, my, I, I, I need to, the Bible, the Bible says Proverbs 26 verse five says that I need to always answer my neighbor who's a fool. So I'm going to comment on these Facebook posts. Uh, and I'm just going to keep commenting over and over. Cause I mean, you know, that's what the Bible says. No, no. The verse right before it says, "You're going to become a fool yourself if you just—that's all you do all day—is you know troll on Facebook posts, right? Uh, that, that you don't agree with, um, and that's—that's that's true, right? So maybe there's ways where you can say, okay, well, when it's my brother." Uh, who I have a long-standing relationship, who's saying this thing that's going to be harmful to someone else. Uh, maybe I need to step in there and talk about him, talk with him, so that he doesn't descend into foolishness. Ah, but when maybe it's a rando stranger on the internet that I don't know, um, maybe I'm not going to get involved in that because then I'll become a fool myself. I'll just be wasting my time and all my energy, right? So it's contextual. So I do think that the Bible gives us lots of different um, ways to respond to empire. Um, so, I mean, one of the ways, I mean, Revelation tells us, hold on. And I do think that's kind of smart in a way, because Revela- I mean, you're, it's a Roman empire and you're like a group of nobodies. <laughs> You know, like you're not going to like take this thing on and take it down. Right. That's God's job. Um, and and, you know, you can be subversive in little ways here and there or whatever. But, um, you know, ultimately, like it's not you're not Luke Skywalker, like, you know, blowing up the, the, the walkie thing. You know, you're not going to be doing that to the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh you, you you are just a person uh but god is going to be doing this so hold hold fast hold the faith and that's the, basically the best you can do that's part what probably what daniel is saying too we'll talk about the historical context of daniel 7 in just a moment but that's i think like really crucial but there are other moments like esther where oh. esther's got to step up and say something you got to say something or your people are going to die and then there's other books the, too like
2: one oh, of yeah. the things that makes this really weird for me kind of mind bending is like my in, in hearing some of these books and hearing revelation at church, it seems like it's coming from people who really are on the fringes of this empire or yeah. who are not a part of it. And when I think about my place in the United States, which is arguably just as powerful and as wealthy as yeah. you know, any other sort of ancient Rome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, Oh, but I enjoy like a really nice seat at the table here. Right. Yeah. So then when I You're in a
1: democracy. <laughs> yeah. When I
2: hear a book like Revelation and I, I'm like, which side am I on in this cosmic yeah. battle? You know, um, because it's coming from people who could not participate in this this big thing that was like, I don't know, pretty questionable. But it's like, oh we yeah. all we all do participate to a degree. So that also makes it kind of a funky book to read today.
1: Yeah, and and, and I imagine there were ancient Christian communities, even at the time Revelation is written, that went through some of that. So, for example, Corinth, you know, where Paul has the letters to the Corinthians, and they've got kind of segregated church, right? They got uh, they got you know community that's uh, part rich and part poor, and the rich people have their pre-party where they uh, hang out and have their own Eucharist beforehand with expensive caviar, and then they invite the poor people to come eat the scraps. And Paul says screw that. Right. I mean, I, you know, you can't, that's not, that's not church. Um, but, but, you know, imagine revelation, you got a group of people sitting there reading it. Some of those people at the, at the corner of the church would have been like, what the hell is this time? And then some people would have been like, that's me. I you know I'm right. I'm right there. You know? So I do think that like the church was dealing with this, even at the early stages. Um, but you think you're right. There's a lot of, this is about audience. It's kind of like when you read a lament Psalm, like a really sad Psalm. It's talking about like somebody dying Psalm 88 or something. And I'm like, looking at myself, I'm like, I'm fine. I'm healthy. Everything's fine with me. What can I learn from reading this psalm? It's not about, like, if I'm anything in this psalm, it's like the person who this person's mad about because they're like fine and, and, you know, the speaker's dying. You know, I'm like, you know, like they're angry at their friends for not taking care of them enough. I'm like, that's probably me. I'm that guy who's been not, not caring for my sick neighbors enough. You know what I mean? Like, so if I'm anywhere in the psalm, so why would I read the psalm? And maybe it's so I can be like, oh, I can help my name, you know, like, like, in other words, like reading the Psalm where we're not the heroes, or, you know, whatever, or you know, reading Revelation, where I'm definitely not the hero of Revelation, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of the, 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 the great ancient martyrs or something, you know, I'm this guy, like, who gets mad when the water pressure is low and stuff, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not suffering over here. Um, uh, but at the same time, what can I learn from that? Well, I mean, I can learn and I can always remember, uh, that, that this is real. Like there are people around the world, or I mean, my community, there are people down the street from me who are living through hell and, and God, like this, this stuff makes a lot of sense to them. And if it doesn't make sense to me, maybe I need to think some and put some, put myself in their shoes. And maybe, maybe then I would like open my eyes to how I can help or how, how I can be a part of actually like doing something in the world, you know? Um, uh, you know, it's, a. uh, I I could be, you know, I I have some power limited, but I have some power in my political system, uh, in my local political system, in the political system of my school, in the political system of my family, even, you know, I got some power in some of my systems. Um, So how can I uh, read Revelation, which is a a, a harsh critique of power uh, and how it's used? And how can I walk away and say, um, I'm not the person who is at the breaking point to whom God is saying, um, like just hold on, hold on and and keep the faith. I'm not that person, but what can I do for those people who are at that point? Or how can I seek to change things? Um, so that people aren't at that point. Um, but also how can I be a part of God's work in the world for those who are at this point? Um, I think that's all those things that, that, that we can, we can bring to it. Um, there are lots of lessons we can learn from our revelation and from Daniel. Um, but that's, I think that's one of them. But the other thing too, is to realize that we're probably going to be at that point sooner or later ourselves for some reason or another, right? We're all going to have our personal apocalypse. We're all going to die. Every one of us. Um, we're all going to be there at the death of our friends and the death of our, of our uh, loved ones. Um, we're all, we're all going to see this. We're all going to go through earth shattering experiences um, that, that are going to tear us apart. Um, maybe we're not there right now, but uh but these moments where we're told, "Hang on, hang on, hang on," um, if we imbibe these lessons before we get to a point like that, I mean, I, you know, I, for me, I think about climate change and things like this, and I think, uh, you know, we're we're not far away um, from where the world might seem like it's falling apart in in, in ways. Um, and, and that is
0: one thing that I've definitely experienced since moving to Utah. <laughs> like it was, it's been made real to me in a way that did not uh, was not as real when I lived in the Southeast, just a, just an aside, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, the world really is on fire.
1: Yeah. We got a lot of water in the South and I'm sitting on top of a giant aquifer, but, uh, not everywhere's like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all to say that these, you know, uh, we're, we're probably and and uh, you know, one way to think about this too, is, um, those folks who, uh, are, I mean, uh, giving up their lives and going on a dangerous journey to try to uh, to, to go to another country um, because their world has fallen apart um, you hear the stories of people who are um, at border crossings and those aren't stories of people who are like just trying to make more money um, you know these are stories of people whose lives have fallen apart whose worlds have fallen apart I mean I was just talking the other day with someone who's writing a book about um, Georgia in the 1970s, uh, especially 1975 with the fall of Saigon and all the influx of hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese um, immigrants at the time whose worlds had just collapsed. And uh, so all to say that we're surrounded by folks like that uh, who are going through this. And I think the more sensitive we are to those experiences, but also to realize, like, this is the message. Hold on. Like, keep the faith. like And that might be me giving this, this message, you know. Um, like, but also like, how how can I help? Like that's that, to me, that's like this huge message of, um, of apocalyptic literature is like, you know, it's about ends of worlds, which uh, there's not just one. Uh, So a big word for this is eschatology, right? The end. Um, But it's really important to notice that throughout the Old Testament, especially there's lots of ends, like the end of the Northern Kingdom, the end of the Southern Kingdom, the end of exile, the end of, and all of those are ends. Uh, And apocalyptic eschatology means like, you know, the very end of time, um, uh, but it it could talk about a lot of times. And I do think that, uh, let's say Daniel, I can get into the history around Daniel a little bit, um, but just to say it, it, Daniel talks about the end of time uh, in a very kind of uh, sketchy way, um, but it also speaks very clearly about the particular experience of Jews living in Jerusalem in the year 167 B.C it's kind of random year, but an important one. Um, But just to say these apocalypses are always specific, but they don't stop there. Like we can, we can think about any moment of a break or an end um, being a moment where these texts come to life. And I think offer uh, uh, incredible spiritual and practical resources for us um, in those times. Um, But yeah, great question. So um, other questions or comments, Uh, and maybe I'll move to uh, talking about the historical moment of Daniel for a minute. OK, so um, uh, one thing I'll say about Daniel, uh, uh, the first half of Daniel um, is Daniel in the Babylonian and Persian into the Persian Empire. And he's uh, you know, been taken away from his home. This is during the period of the exile and so on. Daniel seven is this radical change in the book where it goes from stories about Daniel to like Daniel narrating his own dreams and what he sees to an unidentified audience that's like us. Um, Daniel's never talking to us before this, us meaning the readers. Um, so it's this change in genre, a type of story. We'd call it Daniel one through six. We call those court stories. There were lots of court stories in the ancient world where foreigners were taken into the court of a king and had to live on their own wits. Um, this is not just a Jewish thing. This is basically a way for people in the ancient world to think about how to deal with, uh, with their own identity, which didn't fit with some sort of like majority. Um, this was a common experience for people in the ancient world who were displaced, um, who were uh, uh, taken uh, and you know made to work in in foreign courts, um or who were scattered abroad. I mean, there were great depopulation or repopulation efforts by ancient empires all over the ancient world. So people were often being moved around or replaced or scattered, mixed with other folks um, for purposes of making them docile and not fight back. Um, So this was an ancient technique of of population management. Um, So there were a lot lot of experiences like this for folks. There was a lot of literature out there. And Daniels kind of participates in that, but it's a different message that we get from Daniel 1 through 6. That'll be for another day. But Daniel 7 changes entirely to this like uh, very different way of speaking, this apocalyptic way of speaking, which you don't really see much in Daniel one through six. In Daniel one through six, it seems like the empire is okay in a way, it's terrible, but you can live in it, you can work in it. Um, And the ultimate goal is to try to preach to to the empire itself uh, about God, about about a a different vision for the world. This is what you see in in Daniel four, is that Nebuchadnezzar listens to Daniel and he doesn't listen at first and then he listens. Um, But Nebuchadnezzar learns and changes and becomes the kind of king at the very end of his life, that, that that has hope, right? That gives hope to the people for a different way of understanding the world and a different way that power might work. He dies, his son takes over Belshazzar, who's terrible, and it all falls to, to crap again. But all to say, there's this vision of like, what can I do when I'm a minority person among a majority culture that won't listen to me and be like, live in such a way that people might actually listen to you? That's kind of the message of Daniel, uh, and try to keep your kids alive, <laughs> like that's kind of what you know. Daniel's fan, you know, trying to keep the Jews alive is kind of what Daniel's doing too. Um, but so then in Daniel chapter 7, uh, all the way through chapter 12, things are really different. There's no more talk about like cooperating with the empire or being an agent for change within this larger structure. Um, it's all about the, the end, the breaking apart of the empire, and the God has to do this. It can't be me trying to like preach to Nebuchadnezzar about Yahweh anymore. It's about Let's let's wait for God to destroy this disgusting thing. So there's obviously some change has happened. Um, historically, we would say, uh, if we look at Daniel 7 through 12, we say that there, there are some like really old parts to it, but it seems to have been reworked and updated and recast, especially in the year 167 BC. Now, why 167 BC? There was a Greek king at the time uh, who reigned and part of Alexander the Great's empire that had broken apart after Alexander's death. And this guy, his name was Antiochus. He was Antiochus IV. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, or the manifestation of God, like on earth, you know, God incarnate. Um, So Antiochus IV Epiphanes, uh, he got really mad at the Jews for rebelling against him because he ran out of money and he wanted lots of money and he knew the Jerusalem temple had some money and he knew other temples had money too. So he basically sent Uh, strong men to all of the temples in the region. And they tried to just take a ton of money from the treasury. The Jews didn't like that. So they blockaded this guy's way. And then he sent other people with soldiers to try to take money. And they blockaded, uh, the the Jews blockaded this guy's way too. And they said, you can't do that. Uh, And so then he tries to basically take the temple away from the Jews and install and make it a Syrian temple. They're going to worship Baal there. Jews aren't very happy about this either. So there's another rebellion in a way uh there were other things that happened too that, that are complicated um including the fact that, that the greek kings had sold uh the high priesthood off to the highest bidder to raise money um so this was a big deal the jews didn't like this at all because they said no it's an inherited thing as a result this greek king thinks that they are rebelling there's an open rebellion so what he does uh is he sends troops there and he has an idea and this is like an amazing idea uh Uh, The first first time anyone in the history of the world that we know of had this idea, that was that he was going to get rid of Judaism. Not that he was going to get rid of the Jews or that he was going to kill all these people, but that he was going to get rid of the religion. Ancient people never thought this way and they never said anything like this. Like we just don't have any evidence that anyone ever tried to eradicate a religion because everyone thought that other people's religion was valid in a way. Uh, Babylonian people didn't think Egyptians were wrong. They just thought they had different names for the same gods or they thought that other gods like controlled certain areas of the world. So what we can say is that uh, uh, Antiochus IV has this epiphany that he's going to get rid of a religion and he makes it illegal for uh, people to have Torah scrolls, makes it uh, illegal to circumcise children. He takes women who have circumcised their children and hangs the babies from the mother's necks and pushes them off the walls of of, of the city. Uh, he burns people alive for having the Torah, um, He burns every Torah scroll he can find. Um, and this uh, doesn't make sense. And it basically breaks the Jewish understanding of time and space and what makes sense. Um, and it, it was confusing to everyone. Um, Greek authors have no idea what to make of this. And they they write about it. Uh, several different Greek authors write from different perspectives and all of them try to figure out what happened and they can't. It just doesn't, under, it doesn't make sense to them. During this this uh, outbreak of violence against Judaism and really against Jews who were faithful to Judaism, uh, there ends up being a revolt, and that's the Hasmonean or Maccabean revolt. So all to say, it's uh, um, uh, it's during this this th- basically three and a half years where the temple is being desecrated by Syrian soldiers who are worshiping Baal by sacrificing pigs, which was what was normal for them, but that that was a normal animal for them, but it, it desecrates the altar. Jews begin to call this the abomination of desolation, the the, the abomination of desolating the, the temple and the altar. Um, and three and a half years later, Jewish forces reclaim the temple, which was an amazing, stunning victory. Um, the the Greek army that occupied Jerusalem at the time, the Seleucid army is their name. Uh, they were the largest standing army in the world at that point in time, and Jews had nothing. Like I mean, they they had a bunch of farmers with sticks and stuff, and uh, they end up beating uh, this enormous army um, uh, with it had tactical advantages and of many kinds and things like this, but it was like an insurgent victory. And they reclaim the temple and they rededicate That's Hanukkah. So the, the festival of rededication. Uh, so Daniel takes place, like Daniel 7 through 12 is clearly talking about this time. And we know because it refers to particular people, uh, refers to Antiochus uh, like this. But if you look at Daniel 8, this is where I'll end, but just to say, so we've got all this background to it now. Okay. So Daniel says in chapter 8, in the third year, the reign of, reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. So he's, he's back, like the character Daniel is back in the exile. But he's talking about the Greek kingdoms, and we'll see that in a minute. Uh, in the vision, I was looking and saw myself in Susa, the, the capital of Persia. So he's like seeing himself like kind of in the future. Uh, in the province of Elam, I was by the river Ula, and I looked up and I saw a ram standing behind the river and had two horns. Both horns were long. The one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up second. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. So this ram represents an empire that's taking over the whole known world. All beasts were powerless to withstand it. No one could rescue from its power. It did as it's pleased and became strong. And then a male goat comes up. It comes from the west. That is the area of Greece. And it comes across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. It's so fast. This is like Alexander's conquest. So the previous uh, animal, uh, the ram, was... uh, uh, was Persia, the Persian empire, which expanded to, to take over 75% of the world's population at its height. And then Alexander comes out of the West and within a couple of years of him becoming King, he's taken over the whole known world. It was so speedy that no one understood it. Um, so this is this, uh, goat coming and just killing this ram out of nowhere. Uh, and then verse eight, the male goat became exceedingly great, but at the height of its power, the great horn was broken. That's Alexander's death, which was sudden, unexpected, And in the place, there came out four prominent horns towards the four winds of heaven. These are the four empires that rise up to take Alexander's place. There's a period of brief squabbling after Alexander's death, but basically there's a consolidation into four major empires of his four generals that end up winning in the wars that that come after his death. One of them grew, uh, out of one of them grew another horn, a little one, which grew great toward the south, towards the east, towards a beautiful land. It grew high as the host of heaven, that is the angels. It threw some of them down to earth, some of the hosts and the stars, and trampled on them. Against the prince of the host, that is the the chief angel of God, it acted arrogantly, took away the regular burnt offering and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. The burnt offering, the sanctuary, that's Jerusalem. So the Jerusalem temple gets overthrown. This is in 167 BC. And this person, this little horn that acts arrogantly is Antiochus IV. Uh, Because of this wickedness, the host was given over uh, and uh, he throws truth to the ground uh, and he keeps prospering when it does. So then I heard a holy one speaking. And they say, This angel says, How long is this going to happen for? And another says, For 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then the sanctuary shall be restored. That's about three and a half years. So uh, this is this is a repeated number that comes up again and again about three and a half years, which is actually the length of time which the temple was in a desecrated state before it was restored by the Hasmoneans or Maccabeans. But, but Daniel doesn't get all this, right? So then the angel comes and explains it to him. So I had seen this vision, verse 15. I tried to understand it. And then someone appeared, this per- person angel, you know, angel in the form of a person. And I heard this human voice calling Gabriel. Help this man understand the vision. By the way, Gabriel um, uh, and Michael, we uh, here referred to in Daniel, it's the earliest mention of a name of an angel. Angels are all anonymous before this. After this, we start to get names of angels like Gabriel um, and Michael. Uh, and so, uh, by the way, the, you wouldn't have named angels before this because people were worried that you would have worshiped them. You know, we only have one God. Jews say, we only have one God. We only have one God. By this time, Jews are so monotheistic that they're like, we can have names, but still the name Michael means who is like God. In other words, don't worship me. they're still nervous about worshiping angels so um so this angel comes near uh gabriel and when he came i became frightened and fell prostrate and he said hey this is the vision of the end as he was at the end of what end of all time or the end of this nation or the end of the temple being desecrated right it's unclear but it can can be used to think about any end um so as he was speaking to me i fell into a trance and then he said hey i'm gonna tell you what happened right Then he begins to explain. Verse 20 As for that ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, Persian Empire. The male goat is the king of Greece. That's Alexander. That's how they talk about Alexander. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander himself. As for the horn that was broken, in the place which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not without his power. Those are the four main kingdoms of Alexander's uh, descendants or whatever, the inheritors. at the end of their rule, when transgressions have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance shall arise. Skilled in intrigue, he'll grow strong in power and so on. He'll destroy the powerful ones and destroy the holy ones. And then verse uh, at the end of verse 25, without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He's going to fight God. Now, how do you fight God? Well, remember, he's the first person in the history of the world to try to kill a religion. And he kind of succeeds for a while. It seems like Judaism is done for. I mean, like he does succeed in killing and forcing many people to give up the religion. But there's this small group of priests uh, out in the farm side, in the countryside. Um, and uh, and they they start the rebellion and people hang on and hold on. But then he says, he shall be broken and not by human hands. And this is true. Antiochus IV was not assassinated by uh, a Jewish spy or was not killed in battle by uh, the Hasmonean forces, by the Jewish forces. Um, he died. Because he screwed up uh, in Egypt he went to go fight the Egyptians uh, when he didn't have the ability to beat them, the Ptolemies, and, and, he, and he died on the way back. Um, but uh, he might have died from a sickness, too. But so anyway, there's a little bit of intrigue about how he died. But all to say, why is Daniel saying this? Because you're not going to kill this guy. You're not going to get your revenge. You're not going to get the way. This isn't, going to, like, this isn't the story where you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? That's not you. Uh, you're the people who like, are going to survive and hang on not human hands, aren't going to fix this thing. The vision of the evenings and the mornings has been told is true. And then we're going to seal this up for the day when it makes sense. And when is this going to make sense? In 167 BC, when people start to say, should I still be a Jew? Because I'm going to die if I, if I continue to do this stuff. And this book says, hang on, keep the faith. People are, and even, it even says chapters nine through 12, people are going to get hurt. People are going to die for their faith. This is going to happen. But in the end, Daniel 12 has the, the Bible's earliest vision of, res, of resurrection. Um, before this, the Old Testament doesn't really talk about it. But, uh, but, but Daniel 12 says, yeah, there's one day people are going to come back uh, because God is going to owe them something, basically. Uh, they, they gave their lives for this and God is going to reward them. Uh, so all to say that this like, kind of vision of things being finally put right uh, makes sense to a people who are being persecuted and are being asked to risk everything to pass down their faith uh, in the face of persecution. I know we're at time. Uh, but, uh, but let me just you know, stop there and, uh, and say that's how I read Daniel. Um, I know there are many other ways to read it. Um, there are other devotional ways to read it that are super helpful as well. But, um, but for me, uh, when I think about that historical context of when these things made sense, it helps me to reapply it, uh, I think, in a helpful way in later contexts. And Revelation, we can put in a different historical context, but it's a similar one. You know, this kind of idea of persecution. People are dying for being Christians.
2: That's, I think it's really helpful because, I mean, I think for many of us raised in the church, there's this idea of like, hey, I'm going to grab a Bible, I'm going to crack it open to whatever, God's going to help me find the verse for today, whatever. And then yeah. I'm going to, be able to plop down and read that and get something out of it, you know, devotionally or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be hard in the majority of the Bible. And yeah. it's especially hard in those sections to get much out of it. Um, and I don't know that we the, the tools don't make themselves readily available to understand those things in the text itself, unless you're like,
1: right. I oh don't know. Super, super smart. <laughs> I mean, so but you have to have like some of this cultural context and cultural knowledge. Yeah. It really helps it come alive. I think you're right. Yeah. 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 And these, these can be really dangerous texts like the Joshua conquest stuff. I mean, you know, it can be really dangerous if you're like, Hey, let's just read this and then let's just apply this. Let's just live this. Right. You know, uh, Hey, people have tried that before and it didn't work out very well. Um, so like, you know, like handling some of these texts with, um, uh, you know, gingerly handling them carefully, right, uh, and with some wisdom involved and some t- some thought involved, um, uh, I think really makes sense. And yeah, apocalyptic texts can be really dangerous. Um, uh, and so, having this background knowledge and helping other folks be able to read it, I think really does help.
0: Yeah, it almost be like there be. This is the tricky part. Is it's like you, as someone who like cares a lot about the Bible and wants people to read their Bibles and not be afraid of reading their Bibles and you know, but then they read things like revelation or even yeah. Joshua, and it's like super violent. And they're like, are you, are you sure you want me to read this? Cause I feel very yeah. confused. And yeah, a lot of us have grown up in the church and heard them preach in very harmful ways. And you're like, I don't want to be on that side, but I don't really know what the next step is. So yeah. I don't know if there's like good questions um, for people who haven't been to seminary, who, you know, don't know, like the first mm-hmm. thing about like hermeneutics or just, context or any kind of basic exegetical tools but like yeah what would be like kind of like i don't know a few questions that people could ask that are just kind of like mm. who am i in this story and not like <laughs> bringing like your your personal questions of like well i'm dating but this person doesn't really want to date me but how do i yeah. fight joshua in this situation <laughs> like you could go really crazy places with it but like are there good like general yeah. questions you could you know recommend to people when they approach yeah you? Next.
1: Yeah, I, I think the most important one—the one I would like say—if uh, if there's if there's one question we can like we can get everyone to ask before they read a biblical text, it would be this: What am I reading? Um, another way to say that, with a few more words that make help make make this make sense, is: um, What kind of literature am I reading? Um, so we don't read all kinds of literature the same. We don't read receipts the same way that we read fairy tales the same way that we read sermons the same way that we read newspaper story you know like the same way that we read um you know a work of high fiction like you know we bring different sets of expectations to every type of literature or every genre um that we encounter and those expectations are super important uh because uh what we take away is oftentimes um dictated by and it, like the kind of the possibilities that we can take away from literature are dictated by what we bring to it. Um, so if we if we show up to Genesis one and we expect it to be a science lesson, um, we're going to get some different stuff out of it than if we expect it to be an ancient Near Eastern creation story. But so the thing I, I hope people um, also bring with them uh, is this question to whom would this have made sense? to whom would this have been, because I think the Bible does make sense. Uh, I I think the Bible uh, can be read in every different possible context, but just asking that question, like, to whom would this have made sense, helps me to think, like, this wasn't written for Brennan, like me. It's, It's for me in the sense that it's like a letter that I can read, but it wasn't written for me. It's written in a language I can't I wasn't born to read, um, you know, it's written in this kind of cultural code that is from thousands of years ago, et cetera. So there is some kind of like mediating work that needs to be done in order for me to get there. So what kind of literature am I reading? When I read Genesis, I'm reading Genesis one, I'm reading an ancient Eastern creation story. When I read Genesis two and three, I'm reading a different ancient Eastern creation story. When I read Genesis four, I'm reading kind of like, like ancient family stories, stories about how like these in a family story meaning a story about our distant past our distant ancestors that's meant to tell me something about who we are and how we got here and how we're supposed to live these are common things in the ancient world they're kind of different than how our family stories work today so if I just kind of expect that these stories are going to work a little differently than I'm used to but I also might find some similarities to styles of literature I'm used to or poetry you know We read the psalm. We're reading poetry. It's poetry. You're supposed to read it like a poem, you know, or song of songs, you know, this is not supposed to like, end up being some kind of X equals Y, you know, like an algebra equation. What is this trying to say about Jesus? Um, Song of songs is love poetry. I mean, read it like a poem, enjoy it, you know? So it's just bringing that attention to everything we read and saying, what kind of story is this? Um, You know, we've got some stuff in the Bible that's super historical. Book of Kings has got some stuff that's like basically historical reports and it's how ancient people wrote history but we've got some stuff that's also not history genesis is not trying to be history like genesis people in the ancient world knew how to write history and genesis doesn't sound like it genesis sounds like these family stories which tell about the distant past of families in order to try to tell us like what kind of people we are who are we really deep down And the way they're symbolic and metaphorical i mean they're also about real people i think there's a real abraham out there but Genesis is not meant to give me a historical blow-by-blow encounter of Abraham's life. Just like if I tell you about my grandfather, I'm not going to tell you a historical blow-by-blow encounter of his life like a newspaper reporter would, Um, or like a, you know, like a, I don't know, government official would, would give you a report of someone's life or something. You know, like these are just different genres. We do have some government official stuff out there in the Bible. I mean, in the book of Ezra, we got letters, official letters from King Cyrus and so on, but not everything's an official letter from a king. So all to say that, that kind of awareness that there's lots of different kinds of literature out there. What am I reading, and to whom would this have seemed normal? And then, can I learn some stuff about them? Can I put myself in their shoes a bit? Um, and uh, and so again, apocalyptic literature. When when would this have been normal stuff? <laughs> you know. Um, and like I said, it's uh, I think Jews invent apocalyptic literature, although it becomes popular in the ancient world, um, Greeks I know, and Egyptians. And then we're it.
2: over time, one one last yes question. If, I, if I ask those questions, and I want to get some help. One yeah. of the I've had with when we've been in Revelation is I'll Google a thing, like, what's this thousand yeah. years? And I will Google it, and the top article will be SEO'd. So it yeah. won't necessarily be the most reliable article. It might be, right. oh, it might be from a cult that just is <laughs> yes. really good at SEO. so It's how, probably
1: from a cult if it's, yeah. yeah. yeah
2: How do I find, like, if I want to know, like, how, how do I yeah. understand these thousand years? Like, what's a good... I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't have to be unbiased, yeah. but what's a good, sem, like, layman approachable yeah. academic thing that I could go look to to answer some of these questions?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, this is this is kind of part of the problem. Um, you know, the 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 stuff that, that everyone knows about is oftentimes most suspect. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that, um, like, study Bibles, I mean, so, I, you know, I use a new interpreter study Bible or the new Oxford study Annotated study Bible I got right here. I mean, these kind of things are, I think like they give you some basic resources um, that'll help you with time and space and culture and stuff like that. Um, another one is the HarperCollins study Bible, which I think I've got somewhere around here. Um, and these, these are just some like uh, they, they, they are trying to be brief um, and they have like two page introductions to books um, and one thing you can, I can say too, is that a lot of the, the, the resources that are produced like this, that are super helpful also are meant to be um, secular. They're meant to like be for use in colleges and universities and stuff like that. And they're meant to be non, even though many of the people who write for these are either Jews or Christians who are faithful people, they're written in such a way that they're trying to communicate um, to a broader audience, because that's what like Oxford Publishing wants them to do. And, you know, uh, whoever, Abingdon, you know, like they want to sell these things. So they're going to make it non-specific. And uh, uh, so, so there might, every once in a while you might read it and be like, that doesn't sound, that, that just sounds like, uh, I don't know, like, like, that's not what I care about exactly. That's not why I'm reading this thing. Um, so I do encourage people to have like a number of different Bibles with different like, study helps in it. Um, but having at least one of these, it's going to be like, okay, here's where we probably think this thing was written. Um, they're not all right. Exactly. They'll disagree with each other and stuff like that, but just getting something with the kind of bare bones, historical, um, background, um, is going to be super helpful. And the three I recommend, I mean, there's another one too. the CEB, the common English Bible has a a new study Bible out, but I I haven't haven't read it yet, but I know a lot of people who've done worked for it. And that one should be good too. So new Oxford annotated Bible. It's in its fifth edition now. New Interpreter Study Bible um, is another one it's older, but it's still good. Um, the uh, HarperCollins Study Bible, um, which I think is going to be on a new edition soon, so you might be able to get the old editions on sale. Uh, and the Common English Bible Study Bible. Um, I forget the name of that one, the, the, the exact edition. But those are all like things that'll give you the basic academic resources to kind of like situate stuff in time and place um, and figure out some a little bit about, about context and genre. Hopefully that helps some, but I think you're right that like the, you know, we need, we need better stuff out there, um, for the new Testament. I mean, stuff like, you know, Luke Timothy Johnson's writing is in the new Testament. It's like super helpful, uh, for just giving you some like background, cultural background to stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've got specific books, uh, that you're working on, you know, um, I'm always happy to shoot some recommendations.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, as we're wrapping up and if anybody has any other questions, like burning questions, just shoot them out there. Um, but, yeah, I feel like this is a if if I, I have a dream of being a podcaster one day, and I always want to ask my my guests like, where can we find you, Brennan? Uh, like yes. Where like if you're, I know you've got like your office hours thing that you've been doing. Yeah. um With uh, forgot his name. Uh, yes,
1: Chris Holmes. Yeah. Chris yeah.
0: Holmes. Yeah. And yeah. so you've been having like other scholars on there and discussing different books of the Bible and I, I yeah. guess theological topics. But anything you want to promote if people. I'm sure people have enjoyed this and gotten out of it. So Um,
1: yeah. If you want to nerd out, like super nerd out. um, Yeah. I've got like a YouTube channel where I put my old Testament lectures (laughs) online and I mean, you may, you may enjoy some of them. I don't know. Maybe you don't. Uh, But, uh, but I mean, like, so I, I, I've got my old Testament course and it starts with like what I call setting the scene. And it's basically like the history of the ancient Near East. I'm trying to do it in in an interesting way, but telling you about stuff that like, Where did the Philistines come from and how did government work in the ancient world? And like, how did money work and stuff like that. It's like just, I think, useful cultural background stuff um, that, that helps out. And I've, I've got other videos. If you want to know how Leviticus works, I actually love Leviticus. Um, and uh, uh, and I've got stuff, uh, re- kind of resources like that. So, you know, that that, that stuff's out there for you to use um, uh, if you want to. But also, yeah, Chris and I run this thing called Office Hours where we um, work through books uh, by interviewing academics. Um, so we've got stuff on the study on Job and a study on... Um, uh let's see yeah we got we have james philippians job uh mark um we're doing hebrews right now so anyway we got a bunch of studies out there that but again it's nice because we're interviewing other scholars about it who know more than we do yeah what, what was the youtube book? can we search for on youtube oh yeah just my name brennan breed uh i should come up uh, and, uh, yeah. And so, yeah, my, my old Testament intro class has like the kind of, uh, and by the way, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, the, I've, I've done series for churches and stuff. I did a whole series of the prophets of the exile, which might be interesting to some folks. Um, I did a whole series on the new Testament, but that was during COVID. So like I, I the, the online stuff starts in the middle of the new Testament it starts with the letters of Paul. Um, but, uh, but I've just, it's just kind of the stuff that I would teach in class. And I'm just trying to put some of it online. Uh, again, it's nerdy, they're long, um, but maybe somebody would like it. I I could put a link to whatever I'll I'll, I'll Google it right now. And just put a link up. To, I found uh, it. I had spelled your name wrong. That's why it wasn't coming up. Uh, oh, gotcha. It is an easy one to spell <laughs> wrong. I spell it wrong. No, no. Yeah, now. I see it. In, I see it on <laughs> Zoom now. So I gotcha. Well, I got it from there. Yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so a lot, much, Brennan. And we really appreciate it. I learned a lot. And yeah, thank you for your time. And.